You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 3800 Marlton Pike. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.church. Good morning, everyone. I heard this past week of something called the Millennial Pause, which apparently is a thing that millennials do where they wait like a second before the recording starts because apparently millennials don't exactly know how to record, but Gen Z does, and Gen Z is making fun of millennials on TikTok and other things for having the pause. I wonder if they have a Gen X pause. That would be something I would claim. So, this week, the Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, spoke at CPAC, which is a major gathering of conservative political figures every year in Washington, D.C. Orban is an adherent of the idea known as Christian nationalism. I'm going to pause for a second, and I'm going to back up, and I want to lay out an idea that will set out the entirety of what we're going to be talking about today. Oftentimes, when we talk about politics... We think of politics as purely the cut and thrust of partisan debate. How we frame policy, how we make things work in the government. And yet politics in both the Bible, specifically that we saw today in Isaiah, and generally is much larger than that. Politics is relating to the life of a society. So in a sense, the personal is inherently political. We know this to be true. Laws reflect who we are, what we respect, and the type of community and nation that we want to be. Anyone who thinks that tax policy, road design, even the specifics of what we regulate and what we don't, and why, if we think this is removed from questions of identity, culture, values, and beliefs, you're surely kidding yourself. We don't give the rich the best tax rates because it makes the most economic sense, I can tell you. Politics is personal. It's relating to how we develop our society and the ideas and values that underlay it. And everything just flows from that. So this idea of Christian nationalism that Viktor Orban you know, tries to portray generally is the belief that God through Christ has chosen to bless certain nations with the requirement that these nations uphold traditional Christian values. And that these values are reflected in not only their policies, but their internal and national culture. So in a sense... It's not a separation of church and state. It is a sense that we are a Christian nation and we should act it in every aspect of our life. Now, in Hungary, this is expressed through some of the most queer-phobic policies in Europe. Orban's time in office has seen the most dramatic rise in far-right belief of any nation in Europe. 
This includes an imposition of some of the most harsh anti-immigration policies in Europe, a dramatic decrease in support for the poor, and an effective silencing of any minority voices, including a dangerous rise in anti-Semitism. So I might beg the question, what exactly is Christian in this nationalism? This is a very specific vision of cultural power linked to a political power. It's based upon what amounts to whatever Orban and whoever happens to be in power at that moment feels is essential in order to retain political power and to eliminate anything that deviates from his vision of Christianity, quote unquote. Bow down or be forced to your knees. Now the crowd at CPAC in the United States, in our nation's capital, in DC, filled to the brim with the best and brightest in the conservative wing of American politics and society, gave him multiple standing ovations. With the loudest cheers when he proclaimed that Christian nationalists must rip out the scourge of gender confusion from the heart of their societies. If you've not been paying attention to Christian nationalism before now, it's time. I don't need to belabor this point much further by detailing exactly how God feels about this. I need only return to Isaiah's text. Now, this text is drawn from the beginning of Isaiah's career as a prophet, literally the first chapter. And he starts his career by stating in no uncertain terms that God is absolutely disgusted by the rituals performed by the Israelites. And this isn't because God doesn't desire sacrifice and worship, but because it's all in the service of the goals of the nation of Israel and its power. They want to demonstrate the power, might, and majesty of their elite through the amazing variety and beauty of their rituals. Perhaps the best translation of this text into a form that Americans can grasp is actually Frederick Douglass's speech to the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society on July 5th, 1852 known as the What to the Slave is the Fourth of July speech, it directly echoes Isaiah words, Isaiah's words. Now let me show you really briefly. What to me, this is from Isaiah, is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who asks this from your hand? Trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocation. I cannot endure these assemblies with iniquity. My soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. God's not messing around, I'd say. Now, 
Let's see what's going on in Douglas's text. He starts off by saying, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, and on and on. Frederick Douglass was directly addressing Isaiah intentionally in his speech as a way of saying our national liturgies, our national rituals, celebrating ourselves, when they're not rooted in actual values that reflect who we are, are disgusting. And God would agree. Now, what then are we to do with this? What then are we to do with the fact that we haven't seemingly learned anything since 1852? When a far-right political figure gets applauded and gets multiple standing ovations in the middle of our nation's capital. What do we do? Now, God states it plainly in Isaiah 1.16. Sometimes just lays it out straight. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Seems pretty uh, self-explanatory right there. What I love is that God even acknowledges that this isn't always the easiest thing to do and that we don't often know how to do it. I don't know if you caught this in verse 18, but God says, literally, come now, let's argue it out. Now, I've read other texts where it kind of limits the argue, where let's come to terms, let's find an agreement. But this one I love because I love arguing with God. I love thinking that what I think is right is what's right. That's what we all do, right? We know what's right. We have a sense of this. Everyone does this. We all think we have a sense of how to live out God's will. And God actually allows for that. Come, let's argue it out. God doesn't demand blind obedience. Actually, this seeming paradox of argument with faith. Now, Hebrews states that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This would seem to call for a passive approach to God's will, a meek acceptance of powerlessness in the face of a God who calls all the shots. We should be assured 
of things that we hope for, and hope is something that hasn't arrived yet, and a conviction, not just a belief, but conviction, rock-hard belief of things we haven't even seen. Yet Hebrews also uses Abraham as the example of faith. Goes straight from talking about what faith is, straight into saying, now let's look at what Abraham did. This is the same Abraham who, A, moved across his known world at God's request when he moves from Ur all the way over to Palestine. He's moving across the entirety of his known world with no idea where he's going and why he's going there. Okay, so blind faith at one level. And yet, the same Abraham who questioned God multiple times. He debated God over his plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Worked him down, kept pushing and pushing and pushing as somebody who continuously has the inability to just let things go, who wants to just keep pushing and arguing and trying to prove my point. I kind of like Abraham here. He both has the faith, but also the assurance that God will be okay with the argument. It's both. Faith is not powerlessness. It's action. We enact our faith. We live it out. We try to discern what's the right path. We make mistakes. We argue with God. We listen. And sometimes we're told what to do. And we do it not knowing if we should be doing it this way or the other way. And we argue and we make mistakes and we keep going at it. That is the life of faith. It is not a life of certainty. It is not a life of, you know, an identity. It is a life that is a way of life. We are framed by this kind of faith. It is conversation. And finally, faith is fighting for the oppressed. At core, that's who God is. Now, some Christians, some amongst us even, might believe that we must accrue power in order to ensure that we can fight best against oppression. At one level, I can agree with this. We have to fight against systems and structures. And that sometimes requires power. But the challenge with this is that it's a siren song, too. Power doesn't just let you enact it once. Once you've done it, you want to keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it until you've lost why you're doing it and for whom. If the power is not rooted in God's will and God's desire for the world, as stated clearly in Isaiah 16 to 17 here, we need to remove the evil of our doings 
We need to learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. In other words, anyone who is oppressed, who is powerless. If we aren't giving power to the powerless, then we are failing. And we've become just as immersed in that need for power as the Christian nationalists. We're just doing it on the left. This is a blasphemy. And we sometimes avoid this word because it sounds icky. Because it sounds like the kind of things that, you know, get thrown at us. Particularly queer people. We're told we're blasphemous all the time. So maybe we want to avoid that word. And yet the word, when properly applied, actually works. It is blasphemous to believe that God has a particular feeling towards any nation. It is a blasphemy to feel that you must have power in order to enact the will of God. This is a blasphemy because it's dangerous. It goes in a very weird direction very quickly. Our faith in God must be active also reflective, humble, but also willing to speak out, rooted always in fighting oppression and being channels of peace and compassion. They'll know that we are Christians by our love, not by our nation. We say amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected, visit circleofhope.church. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at circleofhopenet.com.